You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is getting the yes and. So we welcome back Sunil Gupta to the podcast. Sunil is the founding CEO of the Rise app and the author of Backable, a book that inspired a class that Sunil and Second City co-created for the Farley Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Northwestern University. Uh, he's got a great new book. It's called Everyday Dharma, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Success and Joy in What You Do. Sunil is one of my favorite people in the world. This is a great book. Enjoy the pod. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow is just another like the one that comes next. The so neil gupta welcome to the show kelly it's nice to be back i know look i should say welcome back to the show it's so good for you to be here and i'm really excited about talking about this book and one of the concepts that had great resonance for me is when you discover that you're a Dharma storytelling. And we're going to get to what Dharma is, and, and, and we're going to talk about, a lot about storytelling. Mm-hmm. And the reason that clicked with me in kind of an interesting way is when I started getting hired by companies and groups to come speak to them, I'd often be asked to talk about storytelling. And this actually bristled with me uh, because they often didn't know, they didn't know what they meant, I didn't know what they meant, where they talk about storytelling as persuasion, sales, leadership, and one of my colleagues literally started laughing at me after a call where a client asked me to talk about storytelling because in her mind, 90 to 95% of what I did was tell stories. Um, and I did not see it. <laughs> I did not, I did not see it. In fact, I would say I don't do storytelling. Um, and now this is maybe two years later. I don't think there's a keynote I give that I don't talk about storytelling. Well, it's interesting because for me, the reason that storytelling never sort of resonated, or I I wouldn't admit that that's what I love to do, is because I didn't see that as an occupation, right? I was so sort of geared towards this idea of like, it's doctor, it's lawyer, it's teacher, it's, you know, it's not storyteller is not a job title. And so identity wise, I had a really tough time sort of saying, like, that's my, that's my thing. It just seemed too soft, too squishy, you know? And so for me... I've always had this sort of notion of, wow, I do love to tell stories, but I went down a very different path. Yeah, I started working mm-hmm. in tech. I found mm-hmm. myself inside a tech company that I had started and realizing, wow, like I'm not really digging this. I'm not really enjoying this work. And the thing that kind of brought me back to storytelling was realizing that 
the thing that I love to do the most, if I looked at what I call in the book, bright spots, what were the bright spots of my day? The mm-hmm. brightest spots of my day were when I was actually, you know, somehow engaging with stories that yeah. could be the customer stories. It could be telling stories to our investors or to our partners. Those are the moments where if I energetically sort of tuned into, okay, what's happening to me right now? I was, I felt like I was like lit up, you know, I didn't need coffee in order to get to that state. It was just, it was just there. And so as, as I started to kind of pay attention to this a little bit more, I was like, wow, like, yeah, obviously, since I was a kid, I've loved to tell stories. And mm-hmm. here I am now sort of on this path that doesn't really seem to be related to storytelling. So what now? Right. And, right. and in a lot of ways, like that, that's the sort of the crux of the book is that moment where we realize where we're kind of living somebody else's story, right? Yeah. Where we're, we're kind of walking somebody else's path and like, what now? And I didn't have the option at that moment to blow up everything. Like I couldn't, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, I'd, ra- I'd raised some money from investors. The company was not doing well. So I really needed to figure out a way to like turn things around. I had a team that was relying on me. We had just had our first kid. This was not a situation where I could just pull a cord and be like, I'm out. Right. I'm going right. to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, you know, join a theater or go, go work with mm-hmm. Kelly over at Second City. I would have loved to at that point, but it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't an option. So right. for me, it was about, okay, well then how do I start to cultivate more of who I am as this storyteller into what I do? Right? right. Even if my LinkedIn profile doesn't say storyteller, how do I start to express the stories I want to tell on a day to day basis? And I'd say the biggest shift was that if you went into my, my startup's office, Two years before that moment, what you would see is dashboards and metrics and numbers and how, what, you know, what does our funnel look like? What does CPA look like? What is, that was what I was intently focused on. The way my life changed after this shift was that it started to really focus on, like you walk in the office, you'll see customer stories. You'll see this person, you know, we had a, we had a health coaching company. So it'd be like, this is how this person's life changed when they were, when, you know, when they were able to get the results that they were looking for, right? This is what happened to their relationship with their family, right? I would, I would make I would make sure that before we started a meeting about numbers and goals, we would come to stories first. And that was my way of starting to cultivate more of who I am into what I was doing. And it set me on a path where ultimately, you know, I started to write every day. I started to speak mm. as much as I could. I started to tell as many stories as I could. And I guess, Kelly, that, that kind of led us to to connecting. Yeah. 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 And and I think it's funny because yeah, when you say storyteller, you have this like I don't want to hang around a bunch of Ren fairs, you know, this this sort of idea of like, okay, that's not for me. Yeah. I think it's more silly for me working at a theater, not thinking I'm involved in stories because I have been my entire life. And I was raised by someone who was on radio and TV and told stories and cultivated those. And I think the, the thing is what both of us, I think discovered is if you are in either something that'd be considered a creative industry or an industry reliant on people working with people, um, you have to be adept at telling a story because it is how people learn, it's how people convey information, it's how people follow, how people lead, all all those elements. And then that also relates to this idea, I think in the book, which is also what are your sort of spiritual traditions and how do they factor? And, And I think we both grew up in a culture in this country that drew a hard line between uh, work and spirituality as well as work and boundaries and other things. And we also are living at a time where that is changing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what sort of interested me in this book is I I never felt 
uh, attention that the things you were talking about should be anathema in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And I guess when I started, when I knew you were working on the book, because of course we talked about what you were working on, I'm like, oh no, what's this going to be? Because <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of, right? You're, it's like, yeah. is it going to be, and, and that's not, that's not what this is at all. It's more of like heritage ideas, big ideas, deep ideas that all relate to meaning and moments in the workplace. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Dharma is your inner calling, right? Mm -hmm. And, and that, and that, it sounds really sort of big in, and oftentimes to me, at least it sounded a little scary because it's kind of like, well, what if I figure out my calling, but there's nothing that I can do about it now. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and now I'm kind of stuck in this sort of path. Right. And I've got bills to pay. I've got kids, I've got all this stuff. And it it almost seems like it's, it's torture, you know, purpose and meaning they sound flowery and they sound nice, but the truth is that they can actually hurt like hell because if you're not expressing your purpose and you're not living your meaning, then it's just kind of a daily reminder of, Oh, damn, did I choose the wrong, wrong path? Right? right. And and so that's why I was really scared to write a book like this. But at the same time, I was feeling this sense of emptiness that I think so many people were are feeling, right? Which is that we're showing up to our work, we're doing our job, but we're we're quietly quitting, we're disengaging. It's, it's, it, and, and it's a shame because it's where we spend approximately half of our working hours. You know, I mean, the, the, the number one determiner for a lot of us for our mental health is our job. Yeah. And yet the vast majority of us aren't enjoying what we're doing. And as I started to kind of dig in deeper to like, all right, fine, I guess it's burnout. It's, it's a lot of things. There's a lot of factors at play. The one that kind of really hit the nail for me was that it was what Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar calls the arrival fallacy, which is this idea that like you can sort of feel like you are getting the next deal. You're getting the next promotion. You're making these little advances, but every time that happens, you hit a goal, the goalpost moves again, right? It, it doesn't necessarily give you any sort of lasting sense of happiness. So it's this, it's this unquenchable thirst that we have. And I think for me, what I continued to tell myself is, all right, I don't quite like my job. I don't quite like what I'm doing. I'm not expressing who I am, but one day I'm going to hit this sort of threshold, right? I'm going to have enough wealth. I'm going to have enough status. I'm going to have enough respect from my peers. And once that happens, I'm going to sort of feel fulfilled on the inside, right? It'll all have been worth it. And yet every time it was happening, every time I was actually getting some success, I felt even emptier inside. It almost felt like it was more of a departure than an advancement. That's what really led me into writing this book. So let's start with the story. Um, uh, You write in the book, quote, if you look hard enough at your own story, you'll find a moment that feels like the true beginning. For me, it's sitting on the porch of my dad's childhood home in New Delhi. Um, And then you talk about your grandfather. So can you talk a little bit about that sort of origin story that starts the book? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, my family and I, we would take trips to, you know, India. And my parents were, were my dad, my father's from New Delhi. And so he grew up uh, there and his childhood home was still the home that his parents lived in. When I was seven years old, that was kind of the first big trip we took. Um, and uh, it was the first time that I really got to spend, you know, quality time that I'll always remember with my grandfather, who I called my Bauji. And my Bauji was like, you know, legendarily large. He was over six feet tall, barrel chested guy like you know i can tell you this like his that that part of the gene pool did not pass down to me 
<laughs> but you're but, not but, you're not joining a basketball team. I am not. I'm 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 like the least athletically inclined person for many reasons, my size being one of them. Mm-hmm. But 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 you know what he what was interesting was that because I was jet lagged, I was waking up super early in mm-hmm. New Delhi, and he was the only other person awake. And yeah. so we would literally sit on his front porch and we watched the streets of Delhi come alive. We watched the rickshaws firing up their engines. There the were cows on the street ambling to their pastures. Fruit cart vendors were, you know, bellowing their prices into the open air. And I remember that so vividly. And my grandfather, who was, you know, he was an attorney. He was part of sort of the, the, the turnover from British rule into sort of India's independence. He helped, he helped fight that battle and, and, and marched with Mahatma Gandhi. And he was a philosopher, you know, and, and he would just share all these thoughts with me, these, these thoughts about this, this practice called Dharma, right? And, and the thing that I remember the most is that he pointed me to an Indian flag that was waving in the distance. And he pointed me to the center of the Indian flag. And if you look at the center of the Indian flag, there is a wheel. And he said, that is the wheel. Let's see, Ashoka Chakra. That is the wheel of Dharma. And what he said is that, you know, in a lot of ways, this wheel of Dharma represents our life because it's, it continues to spin, right? And, but every year, it almost feels like it's going to spin faster and faster and faster, right? Each birthday is going to come sooner than the one that, that, than the one before, right? It's just going to feel like things are moving at such a pace where it's very, very easy to find yourself on the outside of the wheel where you're just keeping up with the duties of everything that's going on. But in doing so, it's very easy to lose who you are at the center of that wheel. And what you yeah. are at the center of that wheel is your dharma. It is your, it is what my grandfather called your essence. And mm. you always have to find a way to come back to the center of the wheel. And what that means practically is taking whatever this essence is. Like for you, Kelly, it is storytelling. For me, I think it is as well. And finding ways to express that, even if, again, that isn't your full-time job, right? Even if you know your LinkedIn profile doesn't say, what that thing is but if you love to design if you love to build if you love to you know help other people feel good you love to nurture you these are not job titles but they are they are examples of essence finding ways to then take that essence and express it into the world while keeping up with all of your other duties that's really the give and take of dharma so you you talk about eight practices and and the first one you talk about is indeed this essence which uh uh is sukha um and I want you to tell about tell us about the study at Dartmouth in the eighties that was done. You know the one I'm referring to, yeah, um, yeah. And how that relates to this idea of sukha. Yeah. So you know the, there was a group of researchers that devised what they call the SCAR experiment, and basically the idea was that if you were a subject in the study, you had an artificial scar that was sort of put on by a makeup artist, and it was hideous. You know, it was very obvious, and you know, and very blatant. And the idea was that then you were then to go into a room and start talking to a perfect stranger. And you were then to come back and, and tell the, the researcher, how did that stranger react to your scar? But there was one catch, which was that right before you walk into the room with the stranger, without you knowing it, the makeup artist says, hey, is it possible for me to touch up the scar? Just give it a little touch up. And you say yes. But without you knowing, the makeup artist wipes the scar completely off. Yeah. So now you think that you still have a scar on your face. You walk into a room and notice the stranger. Does the stranger reacting to it? You come back and the researcher says, well, how did the stranger react to the scar? Almost everybody who was part of the study said, oh, my God, the stranger could not stop staring at the scar. 
they, yeah. they, they were they were completely infatuated with it but none of them actually had a scar on their face and, and the point the point of the study is really that we tend to see ourselves through other people's eyes right we're constantly kind of focusing on what what are they what are they looking at what are they what are they seeing and what we believe they're seeing is is almost in some ways a mirror of how we see ourselves right and the result of that i mean you can you can trace parallels to that i think throughout our throughout our whole life in all these different situations but when it comes to work when it comes to what we choose to do with our lives and our professions so much of it can be driven by what other people want right i mean mm-hmm. like for me you know i went to law school and i was sort of down this path where i kind of realized like that's that's not that's not actually what I want to do, but I was, it was very hard for me not to go down the path of being a lawyer because everybody else was right. And they were getting the good offers from law firms that were, that seemed pretty cool. And it took every, like, literally, I, I almost signed, I almost signed an offer with uh, this, this, this skull crushing firm in, you know, downtown New York. Mm-hmm. And literally I was, I was having panic attacks with the idea of signing it. And it took a phys- it took my body physically shutting down for me to say, all right, you know what? Something's off here. Um, I'm going to move to Silicon Valley. I'm going to just go like knock on doors because I don't have an offer out there. Nobody knows who I mm-hmm. am, but I'm just going to start knocking on doors. Ended up with a nonprofit called Mozilla, which is the maker of Firefox. Yeah. Half, half the salary that I would have made had I taken that offer at the law firm. But it was, it was my way of finally starting to say, you know what? I'm going to not see the, see myself through the way that everybody else is going to see me. And, you know, but I think that the, the challenge is it's not like I'm completely free of that. I'm I'm constantly coming back to this moment where I'm like, wow, am I doing something purely because I feel like it's good for me? It's what I actually want to do? Or am I doing it because if it succeeds, if it works, it'll look cool in the eyes of others, right? Like, yeah. am, is that, am I going to, you know, the, the most recent thing for me was, you know, venture capital, right? I, after I sold my company, I got an offer to sort of join a venture capital firm. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And then I was kind of like, I don't like venture capital. I don't, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. think that that's actually something that I want to spend my days doing. Mm-hmm. But what was cool about it was the title of venture capitalist, because I know that a lot of my friends want to do that. Right. Yep. And I realized that what was drawing me again was not how I was seeing myself, but the way that I perceived that other people would see me. So there's two things that makes me think about, and they're connected, which is one to an earlier point you made. I I've worked with so many, I know very, very many successful people. I've worked with a lot of them. Um, their, their success as it equates to happiness is act is nil. That, that they, 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 it, 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 and they would say it as well. And then um, many people know this, but not everyone, which is also interesting, which is Tina Fey has a scar. I don't know. Did you, is this a thing you knew about? I don't know that, no. Yeah. So when she was a little girl, doorbell rang, she opened the door, and someone slashed her face with a razor. Oh, gosh. Just oh. tragic. She, she was okay, but she has a permanent scar. And she always felt... Um, uh, like, you know, something was wrong with her. And so her, people might question why a person like that would get into improv comedy. Uh, it actually makes perfect sense in many regards because we are the island of misfit toys. Um, but for someone who is so glamorous and, you know, it has their picture taken all the times on the cover of magazines, all those, to know that they also 
have this thing that they walk around with and she doesn't hide it and it doesn't necessarily even get in you're, you're not going to miss it now when you see it in the picture um and and tina of course is someone who i admire so much because it doesn't matter where her station is in in life or how successful the, the things that she cared about before which are friendship family children all, all those things are are still true today because i think she knew what was important to her in terms of uh, not not just because she is a storyteller as well but also someone who is just always interested in um the way people perceive women mm. and i think when you look at the, the her her work whether it's 30 rock or mean girls or some of the other things that she's done like oh wow that's that that is a you can see that run through a lot of her work and her humor yeah. um not but not easy getting there and i think there's another thing that comes through this book which is like this is hard across the board. And by the way, the success you may have does not make it easier. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And in some ways I think it can make it m- more challenging because right. It, and, and, and not, not challenging in, in sort of the, you know, let's pull out a violin and sort of play a song for you, but challenging in that you can, you can very easily find yourself further and further into the fallacy, Right. Where it's within the fallacy being that, hey, if I if I keep getting more, then eventually I'm going to hit this threshold and everything is going to everything is going to feel okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I just host the Oscars. Magically yeah. everything is gonna yeah. be fine. Exactly. The good news I think for me is that with this chapter with Suka is when I started to kind of realize that, hey, you know, these this this big concept like Dharma can seem so sort of out of reach sometimes. And what I began to realize is that oftentimes, you know, you don't have to go out and find your dharma. You don't have to go on this big expedition and go right. and look for it. Often, it's already inside of you. It's kind of like Michelangelo would would say he would look at a block of marble and he would say the sculpture is already inside. I just have to chisel away the layers that aren't necessary. And in some ways, dharma is is very much the same, which is that it's already it's already there. You know, one of my one of my sort of the stories in this chapter in Suka was about this woman named Mila who was working inside a big technology company. And, you know, she had a, she was a working mom and she realized that what her calling really was, was to be a teacher. Like that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to teach. But the problem was that her family relied on her healthcare insurance. They relied on her salary. She didn't have the flexibility to go drop out, go get a teaching certificate. And so she felt trapped. She didn't know what to do. And then one day a mentor asks her a very specific question. And the question is, what is it specifically about teaching that you love? Specifically. And as Mila like was forced to go into that question, she went beneath the title of teacher and into what she really loved about teaching. And what she realized is that what she really loved was helping people grow. Right? Mm-hmm. Like that that was her essence. Right. As soon as she sort of got a peek at that essence, the marble started to chip away. Right. And she was mm-hmm. able to get a peek at the inside. All of a sudden, she felt like this sense of freedom because teaching, of course, was one way to help people grow, but there were many others. Right. Sure. And mm-hmm. what she ended up doing was she ended up switching to a training role inside her own company. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where all of a sudden now she was able to spend day in and day out helping people grow. And once that happened, everything changed. Like she literally went from dreading getting out of work and getting, you know, getting out of bed to jumping up with enthusiasm and energy. She became a rising star within the company. Her husband noticed 
her kids saw their mother come alive, right? And and I think the myth is that sometimes we have to abandon our job or blow up our life in order to transform ourselves. When oftentimes, like your dharma can be right within reach where you are right now. Uh, Del Close is a renowned improv teacher. Uh, he says, um, when you're improvising, uh, try not to invent, try to remember. Hmm. It's, 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 it's all there and, and you can grasp it. Our chapter two is about uh, bhakti. Uh, okay. So can you tell us what that is? Yeah, so bhakti is all about devotion. It's all about full-hearted devotion. And really the idea behind bhakti is getting deep into, okay, well, I've got other stuff, right? I've got, I've got bills to pay. I've got busy schedules to keep. And so great. You know, I, I have a sense of what my essence is now, but like, how do I start to express it? Like, what do I, what do I need to do? And you know, what the, the, the chapter really gets into are sort of these different models for how to, how to sort of make this all work. Right. And the first is probably one that you're the most familiar with, which is like the side hustle model. Right. And so I tell the story of Tony Morrison working mom who, you know, busy, busy job, but really felt like her two duties in life, the two things that she absolutely had to do was she had to write and she had to mother her children. Right. And mm-hmm. when she got to that sort of point, which is like, those are my two things, she started to figure out pockets in her day on how to actually fit this writing in. For her, it was early mornings. It was on the bus, on the bus rides to her job, little scraps of paper. But those little scraps of paper turned into paragraphs. They turned into chapters. Eventually they turned into Nobel Prize winning, you know, work. Um, you know, but there are so many examples of that. Like Kurt Vonnegut was a salesman, a car salesman, right? You know, uh, Philip Glass was a plumber. And, Did not know Philip Glass was a plumber. Yeah, it's just, it's like there's so many, so many examples of this. What I thought was kind of interesting, though, was was then if you take out the, the side hustle as sort of one model, and again, we're kind of used to it. But to be honest, these side hustles can be exhausting, right? I mean, yeah. I, like I, I, I found it exhausting to have a full-time job and to, and to write. Like I got disciplined enough where I was doing it before, you know, my kids woke up. Um, but like that, that's hard. And I would do it at night Ooh. as well. What what I love about this chapter was the stories of people who were able to sort of fuse together duties and dharma, right? Bring dharma to their duties and and, and duties to their dharma. One of my one of the stories I tell in, in the chapter is about a nurse named Karen Struck, and Karen knew at an early age that her that her dharma was to be a writer, like she wanted to write. But she kind of forgot about that over time because her parents pushed her into the field of medicine. She became a nurse. She spent decades in that field, so to the point where she didn't even think about writing anymore. But one day she gets promoted to a lead role within the ER unit that she's that she's that she's heading up. And one of sort of the downsides of that role is that you now have to start filling out all this paperwork, right? Paperwork mm-hmm. becomes a big part of this administrative role that she has now taken on. What she realizes is that she actually really loves the paperwork. And part of the reason that she loves the paperwork is because she's starting to tell the stories of the patients that are in her unit, right? Mm -hmm. And while most people would just like enter in the clinical details and hit print, Karen starts to take it upon herself to talk about who are these people? Who do they love? What do they do for a living? How do they spend their time in the evenings? And she started to write these illustrative like profiles of these patients, like expressing her essence as a writer through this field of nursing. And these forms, like these clinical forms, almost look like mini novels that started to get passed around the hospital from doctors to nurses. And it reminded them of the humanity of what they did, right? And so all of a sudden, you know, you have this person who feels trapped in this field that has nothing to do with writing, 
and she is a nurse, but she's starting to express herself every day as a writer through what she does. Uh, the next chapter is about prana, and the the thing that really knocked me sideways was when you talk about the Stanford professor Fred Luskin, who estimates that we have around sixty thousand thoughts every day, yeah. and around ninety percent of those are duplicates of thoughts from yesterday. <laughs> and this, the, the reason that stat was so interesting to me is I often cite another Stanford professor, uh, Bob Sutton, who contends that you need roughly around 2000 ideas to get to one good idea mm-hmm. and how people freak out and think that that's just like so many. And I think for any, like when you work in my industry, it's like, that is nothing. Like we, we, we just cycle through stuff here. So this yet again is this idea of like, you contain weight, you contain multitudes <laughs> that yeah. maybe you don't realize and you shouldn't be intimidated by this big number. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it is, it is also for me sort of kind of made me realize, well, something like I, there's nothing wrong with me because I, I tend to sort of, it's fine. You know, you and I know each other and I, I feel like you're, you you're, you're generally an optimistic guy. I think I'm generally an optimistic guy. Yep. I've got a lot of negative in my head and I'm like, well, what, what is like, what is happening here? Am I broken? But when I read that stat, I'm like, oh, thank God. I mean, you know, it, it, first of all, I'm not as neurotic as maybe, as maybe unusually neurotic as maybe I thought I was. We, we all have lots and lots of thoughts in our head. It tends to skew about worry because yeah. we're worried about what has happened in the past. We're worried about sort of what's going to happen in the future. And it just, it's a lot of content. The mm-hmm. thing that I, the thing that this sort of kind of laid the groundwork for, for me was what I now call the worry break, it, which mm-hmm. is, which is when there, there tend to be sort of sometimes one or two thoughts. If you tune in, you kind of realize that there's kind of one or two thoughts that are kind of cycling on repeat over and over again. Right. And if you sort of follow, I think the pattern that a lot of us do follow, we try to sort of almost compartmentalize or push that thought out. Right. I don't have time for you right now. I'm going to stay positive. I'm going to focus on that. But the problem with that is that these thoughts, just like children, they need to be heard. Otherwise, they grow from a whisper into a conversation and into a shout, right? So we may think we're doing ourselves a service by trying to push these thoughts out. But the problem is they're swinging back even harder than before. And they're taking up more and more of your bandwidth. So the worry break is basically saying, all right, I'm identifying this one thought, this one negative thought that continues to come up. And I'm going to give it three minutes of just focused attention. Like I'm literally going to like close my laptop, close my phone, and I'm going to sit there and I'm going to worry. I'm going to give you three minutes of due attention, right? And what I almost always find, you know, is that the worry will actually counterintuitively turn down the volume, sure. right? Mm-hmm. Instead of turning it up because it's been heard. It doesn't necessarily mean the problem has been solved. Sometimes it's out of your control. You're worried about something that you can't, you can't actually influence, but just by paying, just by giving it a voice, just by hearing it out, right? It all of a sudden says, all right, I'm okay. I'll, I'll, I'll step into the background now so that you can actually be more present with the other parts of your day. That reminds me of the ideas around stress that we have this negative connotation of stress, but honestly, we like stress, like if we're an athlete, is we need it. And so the idea of a reframe around that is a very powerful, small turn of the dial. And it can go the other way as well. And I tell the story all the time. Allison Wood Brooks, my friend from Harvard, once said to me, because I was talking about the fact that 
I, I get like you, you, you and I, I don't think people believe us when we talk about it. We get nervous before we speak publicly because both of us do it all the time. Yeah. I'm telling you, everyone does. It doesn't matter. But yeah. part of what Allison said is rather than say out loud, you're nervous, say you're excited. Yeah. So I literally say I'm excited. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, it works. It works for me. And, and shared that with me while we were, while we were teaching yeah. our class together it blew my mind. This is the journey. This is the journey study, right? Yes. The don't stop believing study. One of my favorite, you have to tell that now the don't stop believing. Yeah. It's, 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 I think if I recall the study, it it was a karaoke study uh, where they had people uh, get up and, and uh, uh, sing the song. What I'm forgetting is, is the, the, the two groups, what, what differentiated. So all of them are nervous. Everybody all nervous. nervous. Oh yeah. She gives the prompt to half of them. To, to say that excited. Yeah, exactly. And those people did better. Exactly. Because that's not an easy song to sing. I so half one did better. And and it's it's really and it actually does make sense if you think about it a little bit in the same way this worry break, which and it's funny, Sunil, like when I read that part, I emailed it to Anne. Because I the night before she had been ruminating on something, and I'm married to a person who ruminates on things because she's got such a big brain, she thinks about it all the time. I'm like, oh. Just and, and she actually, I think she's been doing it because there's been that thing of like, I'm just going to take, I'm going to put aside and just going to think about that and deflate it. Yeah, because it's it's it is. I remember this is this is a wild segue, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Yeah, one of the things I love about my wife when we were courting, I'll put it that way. Uh, I remember myself sort of admitting I was a very jealous human being, and she goes, "Well, here's the thing. I think you were always going to have crushes on people. That's just a thing you cannot." contain in human beings and i think if we just say it out loud you're going to deflate the whole thing mm-hmm. and this was like what if like a mind-blowing thing that was like yeah. oh that's totally true if i kind of like someone i think they're cute or she thinks they're cute it immediately means nothing because i've said it out loud and you realize yeah. as a human being the the silent whatever you're building this thing that doesn't yes. need to be built yeah, gosh, so, that's such an important, such an important thing because I think we're we're sort of, yeah, I think like the the almost the genesis of grit in some ways is kind of yeah. like whatever you don't like, you can sort of beat it down, right? Yeah, you, just, you can just kind of like you can you can push it out, you can beat it down, um, because it's unhealthy. It's an unhealthy emotion, or it's an it's unhealthy for your relationship in this case potentially, right? There's yeah. some kind of threat, but yeah, I mean, counterintuitively, just giving it a voice is sometimes all it needs to be like, all right, yeah, that's silly. I'll go away now or I'll, or I'll step into the background. Uh, I posted a thing on LinkedIn from the book, uh, and this is from chapter four, uh, Upeka. Yeah. Um, and you talk about ben, uh, ben Cohen from Ben and Jerry's who talks about the idea of catching people doing something right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have a lovely phrase, it's really good writing. You say, quote, my goal now is reverse the fuses, tack fast on positive emotions and slowly on that negative ones to be slow with anger and quick with kindness. It's the opposite. The opposite is how most of us live our, our lives in that reversal. I mean, I don't know how successful you feel you've gotten at it, but it feels like a really worthy goal. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the shift for me was in sort of in trying to remove the explosives you know, when we think about anger, we think about frustration. Oftentimes, you know, I thought what I need to do is become an evolved human being where I literally just have less anger inside of me, right? But 
I mean, can I, I don't even know how to begin with that. You know, I mean, I, the fact is that I have angry days. I have not angry days or there's things that make me angry. Like I'm human. Right. And, and yeah. it gave me a lot of comfort when I would hear people like Thich Nhat Hanh say, I'm an angry person. Right. He's a Vietnamese monk. And he's like, I have a lot of anger inside of me. I'm like, oh, you do. Okay. Well, I guess I'm not so terrible. Then the question really becomes, all right, if I'm not trying to remove this thing that's already natural, well, how do I work with it? What do I need to do? And, and the, the, the metaphor that has always been so helpful for me is, is this, is this idea that really came out of Viktor Frankl's work, Man's Search uh-huh. for Meaning. And, you know, Frankl, one of the main sort of points of, you know, his work after being a Holocaust survivor and a neurologist is that in between the things that trigger us, the things that cause us pain and how we respond to those things in between those two things is a space. And inside that space lies our freedom. Mm-hmm. Right. And the work is really not about like, you know, blowing that space open to the size of a football field, but literally just like being able to increase it by one millimeter at a time. Right. Yeah. One, like one little tiny nudge where something bothers you and you don't respond immediately to it. That's a win. You're all of a sudden the space opens up a little more. You have a little more freedom in your life. To me, that's the daily work, but I think of that space almost like a fuse now, right? Where it's like, it's like what we're, what we're really saying is that, you know, you once, you know, once, once a fuse is lit, it's, it's on its way to the bomb. And once the bomb explodes, you're, you're, you're acting in ways you don't want to act. You're saying things you don't want to say. You're doing things you don't want to do. Instead of trying to get rid of the bomb, which is just a natural part of you, what you do, what you can do is you can lengthen that fuse. Right, you can give it. You can give it more wick, so that you have more time to really, like, really choose how you want to behave, rather than letting the emotions choose for you. On the other hand, there are certain situations where I think I do want to act quickly, and that's yeah. when I want to say nice things, and that's when I want to I want to be kind, and and that's when I spent time with you know Ben and Jerry when I was doing my filming my documentary series that I was hosting. I went to go spend time with those guys in Vermont and I said, Ben, what do you think is like your best piece of like, you know, leadership advice? And he's like, catch people doing something like catch people doing something good. Right. Mm -hmm. And like catch them, catch them doing things right. Because we're all often always as leaders trying to catch people doing something wrong, catch them doing it right and, and reward them right away. Right. And say something nice right away. So in other way, in other words, like have a short fuse for kindness. Right. Like, don't like there, you don't always have to have like a long fuse. There are certain situations you think of a loved one that you've been meaning to call. Why not have a short fuse for that? Call them right away. Right. Yeah. You, you, I think my, I will notice my, my wife looking pretty, right? Like I'll, I'll see the light hitting her in a certain way and I'll notice it, but oftentimes I don't say it. And then I'm like, wow, like I should say that and I should say it all the time. I, I should have a very short fuse for telling my wife how much I love her. I should have a very yeah. have short fuse for telling my kids that they, they're like, like what I, what I love about them or that I just notice them doing something mm-hmm. good. I should have a, I, I want to have a longer fuse for the moments that they drive me nuts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because I know in those moments I'm going to end up saying or doing something that I don't appreciate. So yeah, it's this reversal of fuses that has, I think in a lot of ways given me at least a framework for how to think about this concept of upeka, which is literally around 
finding comfort in the discomfort, right? Because yeah. to your point you were making earlier, we cannot run away from the stress and that's not even the right thing to do because it no. ultimately, it's the stress that ultimately leads to growth. It's the things that lead us to beautiful destinations. So the idea isn't to run away from these uncomfortable situations, but to find comfort in the discomfort. And one way to do that is through lengthening the fuse. Uh, Rick Thomas, who's a teacher of improvisation, has a phrase that Colbert loves and I love, which is he says, you need to learn to fall into the crack in the game. <laughs> and that's this, this idea of when there is that mistake and it seems like all is lost. It's like, nope, that's the it, Kierkegaard will call it the existential leap of faith. It's this yeah. this this moment. Uh, you made me think of also two other things. I was just on the phone the other day with my dear friend, Heather Caruso, who was our partner when we started the Second Science Project at University of Chicago. And when we were first talking about this, how does behavioral science meet improvisation, Heather and I were walking around the campus and talking about, and maybe we end up doing this work in the neighborhoods because what we want to do is give young people um, that, that moment of taking a beat before pulling a gun. Hmm. take a beat if they could take a beat maybe they won't hmm. and and when we started working on this more in the sort of uh diversity dei sort of space and that's where heather's building a a group out at ucla right now <clears throat> we're also talking about in a work environment when someone says something wrong instead of blowing it all up it's like just take a beat and it's like i'm curious why you might have said that or I have some thoughts about what you might have said, so let's elaborate. But just that that ability to be um, uh, gracious, um, and, and indeed you talk about gratitude and, and here too, about that, that that is a superpower. And it doesn't mean that you're giving up agency. Yeah. Or accepting right. a wrong. That's right. That's right. And that's hard that's hard because the because the injustice is real. The system is is problematic. All, none of this denies that. But what we are talking about, you can't. There's things you can't do about, uh, uh, you know, fix about a system. The only thing, truly, the only thing you have agency over is your emotional response to it. Totally. Yeah. And 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 beautifully said. And I think it's hard also because instant responsiveness has become such a paramount quality in work. And in society. And I think it's so overrated, right? Yeah. This idea of like when somebody shoots you a text, you got to text them back right away. Slack messages blowing up everywhere, right? Posting something on social and then being like, oh, why didn't people like it in the first five minutes? Like we're, we're, we're being pushed mm -hmm. more towards this idea of instant responsiveness, right? Yep. And so, and it's in this instant responsiveness that we end up again, like, like to use what you're saying, like we're, we end up doing things that we don't necessarily want to do. In some ways, I think what you and I are talking about is a foundation for all the skills that I think that we're sort of trying to build into our lives, right? That's like right. You can, read, you can read as many books, you can mm -hmm. you can have as many, but if you don't have space to actually put those tools into practice, then then it doesn't really matter, right? If you're yeah. if you're responding so immediately that you can't actually be able to say, oh, what have I learned about this? Where is the growth that I had, and where can I actually use this thing that I that I, how can I apply this thing that I learned? It doesn't really matter if you don't have that space, right? So yeah. to me, it's kind of become the most like foundational element where everything else follows. Yeah, um, which le leads really nicely to chapter five, uh, this idea of Leela, which actually translates, you say, to high play. Yeah. I, I love that. <laughs> the play, 
Uh, we, See, this we, is like this is like the Paramount Yes and chapter. It is the Paramount Yes and chapter, and and it is play is still a taboo word in corporate America. Yeah. If 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 we what we sell at Second City to corporate America, it is play. Mm-hmm. If I call, if we called it that, we would have no buyers. <laughs> <laughs> so we called improvisation, which it is as well. But the, but 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 it is so crucial with our ability to do all of this. Yeah, you know, I mean, to me, like work and play, right? The 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 the, the sort of there's always kind of been an expectation that I think we're conditioned to have I, yeah. where it's like those two things are very separate, right? You clear a clear boundary between the two of them. The way you work, the way you behave on the work side of the line is very different than the way you, you behave on the, on the play side of the line. Those are two different worlds. What really knocked my socks off was not only the fact that that sort of this idea of blurring those lines had existed in Hindu philosophy and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, know, thousands of years ago, but that it was brought into sort of really modern day performance, right. By people like Jimi Hendrix and people like Phil Jackson. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think the, the, in terms of the science of Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote the book flow, right. And really brought the idea of flow into our system. Flow really in a lot of ways was this blurring of the line between work and play where those two things start to feel almost like they're indistinguishable from one another. You're you're making work your play and play your work. And, you know, and there's so, there's so much science behind this, but I, I, what what I loved about Cheek Set Me High's sort of way of breaking this down is that he said, we have, we have two sides to our personality. We have, we have an exotelic side and then we have an autotelic side. The exotelic side is the, is the part of us that's really focused on the goal. And the, and the autotelic side is really focused on the role, right? So uh, exotelic is what we're going to achieve and autotelic is what we're going to experience. And again, we have both sides. It's not like you're one or the other. The question is, which of these two is sort of in the driver's seat? And I think the premise that I think most of us have had for a very long time is that it's the people who are exotelic, the people who are extremely goal-oriented and achievement-oriented that are getting the best results. And of course, there are some of those people that are getting great results, but there is an equal number of people out there who are autotelic, who are actually just focused on the game. Like they're focused Mm -hmm. on the, focused on the day-to-day experience and they're getting incredible results as well. Right. And so in other words, like you can sort of have this much more fun, playful journey, right. And you can be sort of really focused on sort of the day-to-day experience, the role much more than the goal. And the result of that can sometimes be exceptional, exceptional results. Uh, it's funny. Before we started taping, I was telling you about Morgan Household, and I'm just finishing up his book. I'm interviewing him next week. His book called "Same as Ever," and, and he's a financial writer who talks about one of the biggest problems that we have as a society is is our expectations. Yeah. Um, and you write in this chapter. I just saw. I wrote down the quote: "Quote expectations are a joy killer." <laughs> And, and I think that has part, that has a lot to do with the simple idea that we connect on, which is an improv thing, which is also, I think, present in the Bhagavad Gita, which is the idea of being fiercely present in the moment that we, we, when we linger in the past or we linger in an imaginary future, that nothing good necessarily comes of that. But when we are fiercely present, whether it's right sweeping, you know, right listening, all, all of that, uh, you talk about, you know, hold, holding a teacup and it, it, these are all things. And I, I know for myself, but my, my happiness comes 
when I am letting go of the screens and I can simply sort of exist in a space and a time with everything that's around me. If it's the cicadas uh, uh, being excruciating loud, which is they are right now where I am. Um, it's good. It's, it's, it's good. I, 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 that, that sort of presence, I think is, is an increasing commodity, uh, in the kind of lives we live. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the underlying thing that you and I have learned from you a lot is, 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 is having presence for these moments, right. And actually being to appreciate them. I think for me, the, the big yes and moment of this chapter, and maybe even just for the overall concept of Dharma, is that ambition and joy are two sort of things that can sometimes feel like they pull away from mm-hmm. each other, mm-hmm. right? For me, you know, this idea of if I'm being ambitious, I almost have to kind of like reduce my joy, right? Because being ambitious requires sacrifice. It requires like all these things that have nothing to do with joy. Or I've been to times in my life where it's kind of been the opposite. I'm like, I just need to go focus on joy. And if I'm focusing on joy, then I don't really have a lot of room for ambition. And I, and I think that there's sort of, in a lot of ways, even if you look at like Instagram, you'll see posts that focus on like, do it, be, be ambitious. And then you'll find those that are like, hey, you know, it's not all about success. Focus on the joy. And it's either or, right? But mm-hmm. I think the thing that I love about Dharma is that there, there, there very much is a yes hand. And it, and it ultimately yeah. turns into this idea that ambition and joy don't have to be opposites. They can actually be allies, right? It's yeah. the joy in what you're doing that ends up creating the best results. And to me, the, the, the way to sort of get to that place has been ambition without expectations. Mm-hmm. And to admit to myself of what I want to not hide or or to shame myself for wanting to achieve things because I think that that makes life fun. Like to have mm-hmm. goals gives us mm-hmm. purpose. It gives us drive. And I don't want to feel like the, the message that I want in my life to be like, start to renounce these things in order to feel more joy. I want those things. I want to, I want to do good work. I want to write things that people are going to experience that reaches as many people as possible. That's ambitious. But, I don't want to have the expectations that just because I produce something, it's going to result in all that. Because I think when I have those expectations, that leads me to the crippling disappointment of if it doesn't happen, well, then I don't want to do it again and again and again, right? So to me, the virtuous cycle happens when I'm incredibly ambitious, working on things that actually give me joy, and I can drop my expectations of what's going to happen as a result at the door and at least take some comfort in knowing that even if the the things that I actually set out to achieve, even if it doesn't become a New York times bestseller, for example, the the, what I did was, was, was worth it, right? It was still the work itself was rewarding enough that I'll want to keep doing it over and over again. And I, and I think if you can find that place for yourself, you're, you're untouchable, like you're untouchable. And it, it, it doesn't mean that like you can't value the nice things that are coming your way, because I guarantee you, if you're on this path where you're like loving what you do, there will be nice things that will come your way. But the, the, the best part about it, though, is that those things will matter less to you than the day to day work itself, because you're actually experiencing some joy, because you're actually expressing this part of you that has been just dying and agonizing to get out. And now you're finally getting it out. That will ultimately be the chief reward. I told the story. I was on someone else's podcast the other day. It was on Wednesday. And I told the story and I just finished sort of reading your book in, in terms of th- this particular concept. And uh, I've, I'd finished it and I stepped in the hallway and one of my bosses uh, here was like, 
hey, like we've got these people coming in and suddenly they want me ordering lunch and I can't like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I got you. Like, what, what do you need? And sort of ask me. And then I realized like they didn't have waters or whatever. And so I found myself having to schlep to go buy a bunch of water at Walgreens cold water. I'd go down and get these salads. And I started to stew a little bit. I started to be like, what am I'm not a, like a, I didn't work all these years at Second City to do this. And then I took a moment and I'm realizing it's like, it's beautiful outside. I'm sitting at the bar at Roots, which is making these salads for me. And the Cubs game is on. And I'm like, I get to watch an inning of the Cubs game. And no one is going to, and, and say Suzuki had a three run home run. And I'm like, I got to see Suzuki had a three run. And, and I just realized this is great. And it, in part, because it's like, I needed to drop an expectation about who I am and what I should be doing both broadly in a moment, all of that and enjoy. And the fact was like, I was really doing service for my friends, bosses, whatever. They're my friends too. And I was helping them and I got to enjoy stuff myself. And I'm on this guy's podcast. I'm like, and we said, the thing came up. I'm like, well, I'll just tell you what this just happened. And I just realized like, drop it, drop it. It's fine. So, it. so there's three more chapters, and and I think we'll we'll let the audience uh, uh, discover those because they should. It's it's great stuff. Um, so the last, you know, we had you on originally, and you told us a yes hand story. And when people come back, we ask them for a thank you because story. <laughs> do you have one for us? You know, I do. So great. you know, I think for me, we'll, we'll carry on with one of our one of our topics we talked about today, which is, you know, this idea of what do we do in these moments that really kind of get us angry, right? Mm-hmm. And what I one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea of getting curious instead of furious, yeah. right? And curiosity and furiosity, being furious, they really are very, very difficult to coexist, right? You kind of need to choose one or the other, right? If you're furious, you can't really be curious. And if you're curious, you can't really be furious. So for me, there have been many moments, and I'll give you an example of a friend named Andrew, who I love. He's a friend of mine, but he's just like constantly like this one-upsman, right? Like we'll always sort of like one-up you. And and there's something about it that just always drives me nuts, right? Um, And I just... After a while, I mean, right now, as I was starting to write in this book, I was like, all right, well, how do I put this into practice? So we're in a conversation, and of course, he's, 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 he's doing the one-upping thing, right? And I start to get curious instead of furious. I start to ask myself questions, you know, and the questions are, what, what is it like, what is it that actually sort of led Andrew to be this way? You know, mm-hmm. what is it, you know, did he have parents that were maybe like impossible to please? Potentially there were siblings that were trying to outshine yeah. each other, right? There could have been a lot of competitive dynamics. And and it started to almost conjure up these visuals of like Andrew at the dinner table, trying to get his word in as a child, mm-hmm. right? Where everybody else was outshining him. And like some pain that kind of came from that, right? And I, by the way, Kelly, I have no idea if that's true. I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't, I don't know. But even just getting curious about, hey, could that have been a possibility here? Started to cultivate this like window of compassion for mm-hmm. the guy, right? There's something that's, there's something that's unaddressed inside of him. There's something that's unmet. And that's the reason that he's like, and I wonder what that, I wonder what that thing is. So by just getting curious, I was able to, I think, find, you know, a sense of gratitude 
right? I was able to find a sense of uh, compassion for yeah. him. And that's really all it took, right? Mm-hmm. More, more than that, it just, it just, I really think curiosity and curiosity are these like left road, right road type of type of moments, right? And you get to choose which one. I think curiosity leads to compassion. Curiosity, I think, leads to regret. I love it. The book is called Everyday Dharma, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Success and Joy in What You Do. Sunil Gupta, thank you for coming back on the show. Kelly, thanks so much for having me. Getting to Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Oridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive